keep your fingers and toes crossed. I'm not sure if we're online right now on the radio because there was no uh, oral cue that I usually get, which is my theme. But anyway, so we're going to go on the assumption we are live. Okay. And we'll take it from there, okay? This is going to be Skyping by the seat of your pants because I'm having problems with my own connection tonight. Uh, I don't know if it's the storm outside, folks, as usual, or if it's a driver in the camera. I don't know. What do I know? You know, not too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard everybody out there agree with me. Okay, here we go. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome one and all. Now, as I said before, there is a snowstorm outside right now. What else is new this winter? It's minus a thousand degrees everywhere. You know, we're in the ice age again and the snow just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. All that to say is it's a good night to hunker down, get in your most comfy chair, pull a comforter way up. That's what I feel like doing right now. Getting the, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get the beverage of choice going, whatever that may be for you tonight. Hot chocolate might be a good choice. Tonight, renowned JFK researcher and scholar, if that's you, Stuart, Stuart Wexler joined us, joins us with new scientific proof concerning the JFK assassination. In the past few years, science has taken over in the research corridors of the JFK assassination by simply using 21st century forensic techniques that weren't available in 1963 and to previous generations of researchers. Now, in my own case, I've had NASA physicist Paul Chambers on the show, and uh, he found a frontal shot using very basic Newtonian physics. And if it's one thing you don't want to mess with, it's the law of physics. I also had the late and great Sherry Feaster on the show several times. Sherry tragically passed away earlier this year she was a senior crime scene investigator. Now, you've all seen the shows on TV, CSI this, CSI that, NCIS is another one, by the way. And they use 21st century crime scene forensic techniques to solve their crimes on television. Well, Sherry used the same thing. This is what she did for a living, for real. But many people behind bars using these techniques. She found, and this is essential, a frontal shot. That was the kill shot that killed President Kennedy. Many of you will know it as Z313, or I'll translate it to American Z313. So she found the bullet trajectory that killed President Kennedy. It was a frontal shot. Okay, again, the two words here are frontal shot. Why is the proof of a frontal shot so important? It's because the official government position, something called the Warren Commission, believes that there was only one lone nut assassin by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald who shot only from behind JFK and that all bullet wounds came from behind JFK, not in front. Their position was that there was no other shooters and therefore no conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. So if science proves the opposite, there was a frontal shot and we know there was shots from behind JFK, then by definition, we've got two shooters. And once again, by definition, if there's two shooters, there is a conspiracy in play to kill President John F. Kennedy. Just a few days ago, another breakthrough science-based article came out in, of all things, Newsweek. 
written by Clifford Spiegelman titled JFK Assassination Modern Forensic Science Could Finally Solve Shooting Mysteries. The article was an outline and a conclusion of a study, quote unquote, a study of the brand of bullets thought to have been used by Lee Harvey Oswald to kill President Kennedy. Now, I'm going to read a sentence from that article that still gives me goosebumps. The bullet that didn't match did actually match with fragments taken from President Kennedy's head. This study involved our guest tonight, who was mentioned throughout that article. Stuart Wexler is one of the top investigative researchers in domestic terrorism and radical religious activities. His groundbreaking work on forensics and historical crimes has been featured on NBC, the Boston Globe, Newsweek, The Daily Beast, USA Today, and more. Wexler holds a master's in political science from Rutgers University. Stuart's always here and he's fantastic folks fans of the show will know that he's great he's one of the best researchers we have on he's usually here with larry but tonight he's by himself larry hancock i should say books are america's secret jihad the hidden history of religious terrorism in the united states actually stewart was here by himself for that one and stewart just to let you know it took us four tries but so far it's up <laughs> We have tried four times, folks, to get that particular interview on the hidden history of a religious terrorism in the United States up on YouTube. Three times they took it down. Right now, I've put it back up. It's still up there, so keep your fingers and toes crossed. They won't monetize it because we talk about white supremacy. Oh, no, now I've just doomed this show. Imagine that. We talk about controversial things like racism and, oh, my gosh, can't be true. Racism in America can't be true. <laughs> the Awful Grace of God, Religious Terrorism, White Supremacy, and the Unsolved Murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Shadow Warfare, The History of America's Undeclared Wars. I'd like to welcome Stuart back to the show. Pretty explosive stuff, Stuart. Okay, let's unpack this thing for the folks, shall we? Let's start at the beginning. It's always a good place to start. What prompted you to take on this study? What were the key things? that said, you know okay. what, we should do this? Well, uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, ongoing, I don't know if you want to call it debate, I don't know if you want to call it dialogue, certainly it had its uh, moments of contentiousness with a scientist by the name of Kenneth Ron, who taught a class at, in Rhode Island on the Kennedy assassination and prominently featured the uh, what the, the science is called comparative bullet lead analysis. In the Kennedy assassination community, they usually refer to the technique that is used in it to refer to the, the, the test, and that's neutron activation analysis, so you frequently hear it referred to as the NAA. Um, and uh, Can you tell us what those, what those things are? Um, well, Comparative bullet-lead analysis is the idea that typically when you have a, a shooting in a crime situation, what investigators will try and rely on is the, the microscopic analysis of the surface of the bullets. Uh, the bullets spin through the barrel of a gun like a football in an American football, and that gives it its its you know, it's true flight, but the imperfections in any barrel of a gun 
will scratch the surface of the bullet. And in theory, and we could actually talk about this because this is something else that Cliff has looked into. Uh, it, it's not directly related to our study, but what happens is you, you supposedly get unique markings on the, on the surface of the bullet. So then what you do is you take the bullet out of the victim, you take the suspect's gun, you fire them out, you compare them, and they look great. And that was done to, to an extent in the Kennedy assassination. But many of your listeners will know that the most controversial element, or pot, one of them certainly, if not the uh, most controversial element of the shooting has to do with, with the single bullet theory. And a bullet, a man liquor can a bullet, that's the type of weapon that was used, that got fired through uh allegedly Lee Harvey Oswald's weapon and, and did all the non-fatal damage to both victims and it left fragments in Governor Connolly's wrist, supposedly. And so what winds up happening is that the when you have a situation like that where you don't actually have the surface area of the bullet, in the case of the Kennedy assassination, little very tiny fragments in Governor Connolly's wrist, the, the, the forensic question is how do you then go about matching fragments that can't be used with firearms and tool marks from the spinning and imperfections on the surface of the bullet? How do you match that to a potential suspect? And the science that developed in part because of the Kennedy assassination is something called comparative bullet lead analysis. And the thought process behind it for years was that you can take the lead inside the bullet that is a mixture of multiple elements and compare it to lead from a suspect's bullet box. And even though you don't have surface area to compare microscopically, you can compare the chemistry. And if the chemistry matches up, in typically what the argument used to be was you can say supposedly that the bullet recovered from the victim matches the bullet lead from the box of bullets recovered from the suspect. Now, it's important to note that in the Kennedy assassination, Oswald happens to be the most unlucky human being on Earth. The allegation is that not only could they match the fragments to the box of bullets, which they never found on Lee Harvey Oswald, but they can match it to an individual bullet to the exclusion of all other bullets. And this became the sort of fundamental scientific test that was done for the House Select Committee on Assassinations because what it allowed them to do was take little fragments from Connolly's wrist and little fragments removed from John Kennedy's skull and say, see, we can show you not only were these bullets fired that day from the suspect's weapon, we can take the fragments from the actual victims and tell you that there are two and only two bullets, and we can tell you, based on the chemistry and where we remove these little fragments, we can tell you exactly which bullets caused the damage, because we can, we can match it to the fragments. And this obviously is a huge, just to make a long story short, a huge boon to the lone assassin argument, because it allows them to say, the bullet that we've always said the fragments of bullets that we've all, always said caused a headshot, they match head fragments. And the bullet that you folks have claimed 
could in no way have caused John Connolly's wrist damage, his broken wrist, well, we were able to match those fragments to the so-called magic bullet. So we've just proven you wrong. That's what the government's claim was. Ken Ron, the professor with whom I had this ongoing, I have to say, debate, he would take this analysis and argue that it was the end-all, be-all. He would teach that to his students. He would publicize that on web forums. He would say that at JFK assassination conferences, that the case closed, the comparative bullet-led analysis solves the case. Now, just real quick, neutron activation analysis, that's the chemical technique that you radiate basically the material that they're looking to chemically analyze. Uh, that's the technique that was used to do the comparative bullet-led analysis. I'm going to try and draw upon an analogy. By the way, folks, when we talk about the single bullet theory, that's the magic bullet theory. It has two names, single bullet theory and magic bullet theory. I call it the surface Olay bullet because it dances in midair and does all kinds of uh -huh. twists and turns. But anyways, that's besides the point. Here's my analogy. In the old days, 1963, way before DNA analysis, way, way, way before, we know this for a fact. They, in a murder victim, they used to take blood samples from the crime scene area. And if they could find somebody that was a suspect that matched those blood samples, that was kind of another way of incriminating that person who was the suspect. That was 1963 technology. What you're describing to me sounds much the same. But we know to keep that analogy going forward that DNA has come into it now and we can get right down to that person's specific specifics characterizations through DNA. Is this what this technique has done when you did the study? It's got great. <laughs> is it close? Well, I, I laugh. I laugh because I used to use that analogy whenever I did a presentation. Okay. Um, and the way I did it, I would almost See, we're in tune, I, We're in tune. The way, <laughs> the way to way I did it is in many ways what the important thing is Ken Ron was arguing, and before him the person who did the test, a, a doc, a, a chemist by the name of Vincent Gwynn, they were basically making it out to be as if it was DNA. We can get the exact profile of the bullet, the exact profile of the, of the thing that supposedly contributed that bullet and the fragments, and we can make a positive match to the exclusion of all other people. Now, you were referring to old school blood type. If they took, a, you know, in 1958, if they found blood, they could say, oh, it's a positive blood. But then 50 million other people could have produced that a positive blood. They couldn't be definitive. We actually, what my argument ultimately is that we'll get to is, is at best, comparative bullet-led analysis was like blood type. And people were running around claiming it was like DNA. Okay, that's a lot clearer. Okay. So this is what prompted you to take, to take on this study. Now, how did you start, how did you reach out to people to come together to start doing this study to prove this falsity? So I was sort of on a crusade, and anybody who knows me, when I get hooked on to one of these things in any of the assassinations, I tend to not give up very easily. So I tried to find forensic chemists, and I started 
as you might expect in the United States to try and find forensic chemists, but uh, you mentioned Sherry Feaster. Part of what made her so amazing was she was one of the only United States-based scientific experts who would put her neck out into something as controversial as the Kennedy assassination. And her exceptionality, I knew quite well because I was consistently turned down by domestic forensic scientists. So then I went to foreign forensic scientists and they were more, a little bit more willing to go on the record and they were more skeptical of the th kinds of things that Ken Rod was saying. But it was still the case that Ken Rod can claim that the bullets that were in the Kennedy assassination, poor Oswald, he had the misfortune of getting the only bullets around that were subject to like DNA quality comparisons relative to other kinds of bullet brands. And so that, that was the gauntlet for me. Now I've got to get somebody who's willing to take the actual Manlicher Carcano bullets and test that proposition that they're these super special kinds of bullets that you can do this test for. And I had help, a friend of mine by the name of Tom Pinkston, who is a lab chemist. And together we went kind of crazy just trying to find uh, vintage era Manlicher Carcano bullets. Those are the brand of bullets that uh, Winchester, I should say, Winchester bullets, Manlicher Carcano bullets. We eventually acquired them, the 6.5 millimeter Winchester bullets. And then our goal was to find somebody who's willing to do the tests. And there again, I got very lucky. I found yet another person similar to Sherry who was just willing to put his neck out on controversial issues. And this was Cliff Spiegelman. Now, he had something of an ulterior motive. He likes to get historical cases because it gets press for, his, for the work he does. And a lot of the work he does, he's a statistician. A lot of the work he's been doing over the last 15 years has been about the way that statistics and probability are used to couch and characterize and interpret forensic data in criminal trials. And it's a story I could get into if we want to a little bit later on, but the big picture is there's a lot of problems with a lot of different areas of forensic science. And so he wanted to use the Kennedy assassination to go into some of the things that he'd been finding and that others had starting to be to find as problematic with comparative bullet lead analysis. He was going to use the Kennedy assassination to kind of spread the message that maybe we need to reconsider just how strong this science is. And what intrigued him, and it's funny, is independently of me, he had heard Ken Ron, Dr. Ken Ron, the guy I was mentioning before, on the radio touting the comparative bullet lead analysis in the Kennedy assassination and throwing out probabilities like one in 50 million, just ridiculously high probabilities. And of course, he's a professional statistician. That made him a little bit suspicious and he wanted to dig further. So essentially, Stuart, what you're saying is by doing these tests and finding out your results, you've proved 
that the science that convicted Lee Harvey Oswald, if you will, of the murder of President Kennedy, the science used is false. That was used in well, 1963. Not just by itself. What we really did was show, well, first off, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really intensely used in 1963. The FBI kind of didn't pl place a lot of weight into it. What happened was in the, when the Congress reopened the case in the late 1970s, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, they then invested heavily in it, and they used it as almost like the signature piece of evidence to show that Oswald at least was gone, at least fired the one fatal headshot and all of the non-fatal wounds. And what we did was what we managed to do was just confirm what the what other experts, metallurgists, chemists had been starting to say when these tests were done about 10 years ago that no, Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't somebody who just happened to pick the worst possible brand of bullets to supposedly shoot at the president. Those bullets are no different than any other bullets. And the key here is, is that bullets are deliberately designed so that the lead is basically exactly the same from bullet to bullet in massive batches that produce tens of thousands of bullets and are shipped all over the country. And the reason for that is, is they want a particular brand of bullet to fly true every time it's fired. And the chemistry of the bullet lead is very important to that. So when metallurgists started hearing about this science, they already were like, this is, there's something wrong here. And then forensic chemists started coming on board, statisticians came on board. And what I would argue is, is what our test was, was simply maybe one of the most famous examples of proving that you can't take a fragment from a victim and a little tiny fragment, analyze it chemically, and claim that it came even from a box of bullets, much less what they did in the Kennedy assassination, which is to claim that it came from an exact bullet to the exclusion of other bullets. So again, what this proves in my mind is that what they based their evidence on of being a single bullet could actually be two bullets, because the science that they used was false to make that to make correlation. It, to make this very simple, yep. they said two and exactly two bullets, and what the best they can say scientifically was at least two bullets. And that doesn't get you anywhere with the lone assassin or conspiracy because it could be two and potentially just one shooter, but then it could be three and two shooters. So, and four and three shooters. So it, it doesn't get you anywhere. It basically doesn't help you figure out any way what happened because nobody i know thinks only one shot was fired that would be a truly magic bullet now i had mentioned paul chambers the nasa physicist who came on the show so he was talking about the fact that getting back to the magic bullet there were more grains if you will of that bullet found inside governor Connolly's wrist because the bullet went into governor Connolly Connolly's wrist folks and actually broke his wrist then were actually missing from CE399, which is the Warren Commission's bullet that they say is the magic bullet. Uh, were you aware of that at all? That was news to me I'm when aware, you mentioned that. I, I'm aware of the argument. I don't think having followed it the back and forth, it's quite as solid as 
he makes it out to be. That could be the case, but I don't think it's definitive. Now, the thing is about the magic bullet, also, there was no blood and no tissue found on it. Now, to me as a novice, I'm not an expert in this area whatsoever. That seems a bit odd. Do you think that there would be some kind of remnants, if this thing was going to cause seven wounds, some kind of remnants either of blood or tissue, either from Governor Connolly or President Kennedy, on the bullet itself, and nothing at all was found. It was like pristine almost. Um, yeah, and no fiber striations, even though it went through clothing. My understanding with a lot of this is it's uh, the kind of answers of, along the lines of possible but not likely. So, you know, we're left, you know, as is typical in the Kennedy assassination uh, with people who invest heavily in things that are possible but not likely, and therefore we can't convince them. One of the uh, sentences that I had mentioned also at the beginning was, I'd like to get you to comment on the one, the bullet, folks, that didn't match, did actually match with fragments taken from Kennedy's head. Could you comment on that for us and explain I what think, that is? I, I think, and I'll be honest, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the context for that. I think what, what Cliff was trying to say was um, when we took a, box, a couple of the boxes of bullets that we acquired, Tom Pinkston and I, and gave it to them for analysis, they didn't analyze all of them, but they analyzed a lot of them. And their goal was to see, can you tell bullets apart from each other in a box? And what they found was, generally speaking, just to sum it up, basically, no, most bullets in those boxes had at least one, if not several pairs or twins or, you know, multiple twins, triplets, whatever, within the box, which means that it's impossible to, again, to say that a fragment came from a specific bullet. There was one bullet, I believe, that they analyzed, which had no, uh, no matching friends, so to speak, in the boxes that we gave them. But the irony about that bullet was is that it matched chemically the, the fragments that were obtained supposedly from President Kennedy's head. In other words, it matched another bullet from another box which is entirely possible because these things are produced by the thousands out of a single vat of lead. And then they're basically thrown into something like a hopper where they're, and it's not fully randomly distributed. And then they're put into, you know, boxes and then giant, you know, you know, shipments and set to a particular region of the country. And I had somebody, one of the only American a forensic chemist I could get to comment on the issue as a whole was a guy from Oregon who testified frequently for the prosecution in his cases. And he said, and I asked him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of the new studies are suggesting that you really can't match a bullet to a box, much less a bullet. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's that. We've known that for a while now. In fact, it, it would match up to, you know, I would routinely testify in cases where I would say, where I was asked if the bullet matched the suspect's box. And I would say yes. And since the defense attorney never bothered to ask me if it could also match up with thousands of other boxes in the city that we lived in, I never would add that in. So people would go to jail. 
what has been the reaction from the community, especially the ones that want to, as you mentioned before, there's a fellow teaching this to his students, insisting that this is the smoking gun, if you will, that proves that Oswald was the shooter. What has been his reaction and the reaction from others that follow suit? Well, well, this study actually was published about a decade ago, about, about 10 years ago, when, and it took off when it first came out. It got huge play on everything from Fox News to CNN. And uh, once it got published, and, it was, and there was another study uh, um, from a different uh, angle on the same, but on the Kennedy assassination also. And both studies said the stuff that was said in 1977 about these bullet leads is bogus. The teacher, uh, Ken Ron, who I had spoken against in many a conference and online forever, uh, quite frankly, he, he, he kind of put up a fight for about um, a, a few months. And for, as far as I understand, I don't even, it's going to sound terrible, I don't even know what happened to him. He kind of disappeared off the scene after that when the high school history teacher who he had been ridiculing for not having, knowing what he was talking about, for 10 years wound up being proven right. Uh, I, I think he kind of kind of crawled a, into a little hole, so to speak. Um, and uh, Tucked but, his tail between but, his legs. So yeah, speak, but yeah. here's where, where it becomes problematic. Um, he had a colleague in doing this, somebody who didn't quite disappear named Larry Sturdivant, who's a wound ballistics expert. And Larry Sturdivan shows up in this most recent study by two, um, a father and son team of ballistics experts, which purports to say that there was one assassin based on testing that they did. And a big part of what they did was they consulted with Kenneth Ron, not Kenneth Ron, I'm sorry, with Larry Sturdivan, who is Kenneth Ron's partner. And Larry Sturdivan acted like uh, none of these studies had been done. At the present moment, comparative bullet lead analysis is not done. It's gone. It is not done in any single lab in the entire country. That's how discredited it is. It is done as a forensic science. Nobody does it anymore. And yet these guys, relying on Larry Sturdivan, went right back to the argument about uh, made in 1977 that along the lines of, see, the chemical evidence proves what we've been saying. So it hasn't fully died yet, and I think it needs to die, and not just for Kennedy assassination. There's, there's people who probably need to get out of prison because they were sent to jail because of comparative bullet lead analysis. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, and that's what led me earlier on to the uh, DNA analysis. We know once a DNA analysis, if it's possible for people that are behind bars that are still to this day claimed innocence, very often they're proved exactly that, innocent. And thank God they get out from behind bars on a mistake like that. Now, I want to go somewhere I've never gone with you before, and that's back to DV Plaza. Where do you think the shots originated from? <laughs> We've never talked about this, you and I. We've before. never talked about it. Um, is that what is that? I, I have, a, I have only one. <laughs> Uh, As I say this with I, I used to uh, my my interest in the in the Kennedy assassination go into uh, multiple areas and that is one of them, but that's the one 
that boggles my mind the most. Uh, there's my sense is there's something just missing there. And what I mean is, and this is my own pet theory. And again, I can't verify everything. Um, I, I actually think it's a good thing that I spent a lot of time in back and forth with people who think in lone assassin theory, because I get the, I got the best versions of what they believe happened. And they make some pretty good points about uh, the so-called magic bullet CE399. It has a slight bend to it, a little bit of distortion at the base. And so their argument is, is that it, it, it's, it wouldn't, those kind, that kind of um, distortion wouldn't have happened simply by firing a bullet into a water tank and planting it. But... I actually asked somebody to do an experiment where what would happen if you fired a bullet and it deflected off of an oak tree and the person in question and it went into the dirt and the person in question sent me the two bullets he found. And if you look at them and were to average them, they look like CE 399. And so the problem that researchers have had for a long time, and I'm with them, is if this thing shattered a wrist, even if it went side or decelerated somehow because it struck a rib sideways, it should show more deformation than it shows. On the other hand, it has more deformation, as the people on the lone assassin side argue, than it should have if it was simply fired into something like a water tank. So my operating theory, and it's just a theory, is that what happened was that CE399 was the, the so-called single bullet. It was fired from the depository. It struck the oak tree limb that was the oak tree limbs that were sitting right in front of that that window, and it deflected into the ground in Dealey Plaza. Another bullet, my guess one that was probably fired from the Daltex area at a relatively flat trajectory, but likely went, did damage a lot of the non-fatal, but not all of the non-fatal wounds to both men. That bullet was a bullet that was found at Parkland. It was sent to FBI, as was eventually the so-called single bullet, when it was found in Dealey Plaza. When that got there, the bullet that had been fired from a low or flat trajectory was so inconsistent with one person shooting that it was basically deep six trashed. And as a result of that, this is my theory, Commission, what we now know as Commission Exhibit 399, which would have deflected off of the oak tree and never hit any human being, went into the ground and was found by probably a police officer. We have pictures of somebody finding something in Dealey Plaza. That bullet now has to account for wounds because the bullet that really accounted for wounds was thrown into the trash, so to speak. So that's my theory on the non-fatal wounds. My theory on the headshot, I believe that's even more mysterious 
there's issues there with the x-rays and it's I, I go back and forth because all of the possibilities are so equally unlikely that you don't know where to go. My guess, and it's only my guess, is that there was a, some kind of very quick double shot, rear than front. This goes back to the kinds of things Tink Thompson had been saying way back in Six Seconds in Dallas, his book he wrote in the late 1960s. And... The thing about it is, it may have been actually, I think I said it wrong before, it may have actually been front than rear, as opposed to rear than front. And because we don't tend to pay attention to the head after, say, frame 317, we don't really see the the results of the rearward impact. Many um, people believe that there was a, a second headshot, maybe that was the first headshot, into the back of Kennedy's head. Do you follow? Yeah, well, so for, for a very long time, the, the, the Zapruder film, this case is so strange because in any other case, if somebody told me, I'll get you the film, everybody else would be like, yeah, get me the film. But in some ways, the film confuses as much as it illuminates. And one of the things that's confusing about it is the great uh, physicist, uh, uh, Richard Feynman, he was shown the Zapruder film and asked, well, what about this rearward snap? And of course, he's brilliant. He goes, yeah, but it occurs, if you look very carefully, right after a slight forward movement. But it turns out that if you look very carefully at that forward movement, the, uh, the movement Everybody else, everyone always focuses on justifiably JFK, but look at all the other people in the car at the same moment. They all move slightly forward also. It's probably some kind of a reaction hitting kind of the brake, you know, pumping the brakes a little bit, and everybody moves forward. A researcher named David Wimp put together a uh, sort of a film that shows all of them, and it's amazing how, thing, how it goes in almost at the same exact time, which would mean that what, what Feynman saw wasn't an actual evidence of a rearward shot hitting the head and driving it forward. It was some other force acting on the head. The problem, the reason why you have to potentially go with a rearward shot is the evidence of a small wound in the rear of the head and the x-rays and the autopsy photographs, which show signs of being an entry wound. And then what lately has been happening is people like Tink Thompson, is, who changed his you know, order of the shots in the last two, he said he starts looking at later, a few frames later, you know, 320s, 330s, and he says he sees evidence of a rearward shot hitting then. So, I should tell folks, the Sapruder film, folks, is that very famous film that you see in the movie JFK. Ostner goes back and to the left, back and to the left. It's the most seen video of the Kennedy assassination ever. It's called one of the most famous home videos of all time. Essentially, what it does show is uh, the complete assassination. It gives you a timeline. So what investigators have done is given each frame of the video, the letter Z in front of it, Z in front of it, with the number of the subsequent frame number. So 
we know that the kill shot, we always call it Z313 or Z313. And that is the number associated with that particular frame. Now, it was only 18 frames per second. So that's nothing compared to today's high HD, 4K, and everything else. So there's a lot of information that got left out between, in between those seconds. So here's a question I've never asked you either, and I want to come back to DB Plaza. I got a lot of, um, almost said the C word, <laughs> CR word. Uh -huh. I got a lot of heck and a lot of confrontation from a lot of people. I did a show a few weeks ago talking about the Sapruder film, how I didn't feel it was doctored. What's your opinion on that? So you can get the ugly emails now. <laughs> I'm highly, I'm highly, highly skeptical that of any doctoring to the Zapruder film. Uh, there were other films, a bunch of other photographs, and you'd be setting yourself up for a, almost like a guaranteed exposure of your effort of forgery if you forged the Zapruder film and it turned out to be inconsistent with the other films and photos. And no one has showed me films and photos that are wildly inconsistent with the Zapruder film, which means either these people made a desperate effort to forge up the film and got lucky, or they somehow got access to a bunch of the other films and photos of which we have, that's just, I've never seen any evidence of that. So, I'm deeply skeptical. I have, you know, a couple of very, very smart friends who, in the research community, who swear by it. Um, but they're, they're, they'll, they even say you're justified in being skeptical until some of what they say they believe they have um, is produced in, say, a peer-reviewed journal or something. Yeah, I know David yeah. Mantic believes, and David will be here next week. By the way, folks, you talked about x-rays. We're going to be discussing that. We're also going to be discussing, they put together a little mock trial. They put Lee Harvey Oswald on trial, uh, the trial that he never got, and David was a, a witness for the defense. So we're going to be talking about that. And I'm going to ask him about the Sapruder film. And Doug Horn, who was part of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, I believe, also believes uh, you can correct me on that. Well, Doug, Doug was on the uh, the Assassination Records Review you're, Board. You're right. You're where he right. was a con he helped them out. Yeah, and he believes that the Zapruder film was doctored as well. I'm going to try and get Doug on to talk about that as well. But I'm with you. That was one of the things that I thought didn't wasn't copacetic. They would have to know the people that were taking the photos in advance, taking the films in advance to gather all that information, and doctor them exactly at the same time just doesn't seem to make sense to me but i've got an open right. mind on this or they took a, or they took a tremendous risk in doctoring the film without that capacity and got super lucky that thus far none of the films and photographs are dramatically inconsistent with the zapruder film i'm much more uh uh tempted by uh and and uh sympathetic to david mantic's argument about uh, tampering with the x-rays than I am with Dr. Mantic's argument about tampering with the Zapruder film. I agree. He's done some great work, and we're going to get to that next week, folks, so please do tune in for that. Right now, we're speaking with Stuart Wexler, and uh, one of the top-notch researchers he's been on many, many times, as you know. We're talking about, well, the forensics of the ballistics, 
and uh, right now we're in DV Plaza. My next question, Stuart, to you is, we talked earlier on about Sherry Feaster's work as well. What's your opinion of Sherry Feaster's work? Well, Again, there's Sherry, some that are pro, some that are against. Just your opinion's fine. Well, That's no worries. Well, first off, in terms of, of how thorough, I don't know anybody who's was more thorough in, pre in presenting her case than she was. Uh, and to, so that people understand, the typical argument, and you've probably seen it if you're listening on TV, is that the frontal shot came from a place in front of Kennedy, a little grassy incline we call the grassy knoll. And the and that's because witnesses ran up that area, some heard shots from that area, some saw what they thought was smoke, some smelled what they thought was gun smoke from the area. There were mysterious counters with a mysterious supposed Secret Service agent up there. And so many people think, well, given the way the head moves and the witness testimony, that's where the shots came from. Sherry's argument, and it's a pretty good one, is that the problem is, is that if a shot came from that area, there should have been reports of extensive damage to the back uh, left of John Kennedy's head. And it was more center right than back left. And therefore, her argument is she believed that the frontal shot came, but it came from the opposite, the so-called, I think, South Knoll. And I, I follow along with Sherry on virtually everything she says. The one thing is not so much of a, a criticism of what she did as a, as a one gap that I need somebody to do a test with, which is Sherry's major specialty was, was, was blood spatter. And the thing that got her into the Kennedy assassination was examining the pattern of how the blood uh, flew out of John Kennedy's head in the Zapruder film. And she makes a, a fairly convincing case about the spatter direction in one way, in one particular area. But the other element of her argument rests on the idea that a lot of the spatter that we're supposed to see is so fine. It's a mist that's so fine that we can't see it on the green grass in the Zapruder film. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, given the, what I see in the Zapruder film and the quality of the color of the blood. And I would love somebody to take a vintage Bell and Howell camera, which is what Zapruder filmed it with, and let's do a test on to see if the green grass would hide pinkish blood. If that were shown, I might actually go all in on Sherry's theory because she makes a lot of very interesting points. Um, my, I was, my, sorry, go ahead, please. My argument about that issue, about the back left damage and stuff like that is, A, we don't necessarily know the type of bullet that was used uh, was it a regular bullet or was it a fragmenting bullet? Was it a dumb, dumb bullet? Some people have proposed an explosive or glycerin bullet. And these things might not behave the way a normal full metal jacketed bullet would.
JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.